The RSVP Trust, changing lives around the world. Uh, I want to share briefly about um, uh, why I'm confident that God will heal. And uh, so many of you have spoken about the little healing book, which I wrote um, a long time ago. A long time has passed since, uh, since I kind of uh, wrote that book. And um, it was a year of kind of studying the whole healing thing and what the scripture says. And that little book is sort of the uh, compilation of some of the things I learned during that time. I'm writing another one uh, at the minute. But I want to share uh, one of the basic moments, really, for me, that was a turning point uh, in the Bible. And I had a strange encounter in that just as I was studying this, I felt I was kind of, um, I, don't, I don't mean in a strange way, but I, I felt in the spirit I was kind of transported to a moment in time and encountered something almost as though I was watching it and the penny dropped and the, the light came on and it just is obvious, therefore, that God will heal. And I want to try and communicate uh, something of that moment to you. So I just want to look at two verse, two scriptures in Genesis. Uh, and one, uh, the first one is Genesis 12. And it's really about a- uh, Abraham's encounter with God uh, and how that relates to today. So just as I <clears throat> explain these two scriptures in Genesis, uh, just bear with me because you may be thinking, you know, what you're talking about is so bizarre <laughs> And seems irrelevant. How can it do anything in Ipswich in the UK today? But I will apply that. Uh, but unless we understand this, I mean, we can see miracles. But if you understand what I'm about to tell you, I think they will just come a lot quicker because you will just have so much faith. Abraham is a, is a key person. And uh, the first thing that happens in, in Genesis 12, that the, the Lord says to Abraham, as he was called then, get out of your country and away from your family. And he lived in modern-day Iran. And his father and his family in that nation worshipped uh, the moon. And I, I, I'm not sure, but I think the flag for Iran still has a moon on it. And uh, whether that's connected to what was happening at this period, I don't know. But it's interesting that it has a moon on And that nation at this time in Genesis worshipped the god of the moon. And so he was coming from a background of of confusion and and wrong theology and wrong understanding about who God was. And uh, so the first thing God said was to reposition himself to get ready for a blessing. And we need to reposition ourselves. Uh, There's all sorts of opinions on the TV and newspapers and in churches and everything. And we need to position ourselves uh, under you know, under the place where we can hear what God is saying to us from the scripture. So that means a couple of things. You've got to read your Bible and you've got to study the Bible and you've got to understand what God is saying. Uh, And obviously it's good to understand what God was saying originally. uh, But even if you understand that, what he says through the word today might be quite different. For example, when I was a young man and Hazel and I just got married, I was learning to drive and uh, my driving instructor said, you'll never pass your test because you never look in your rear view mirror. And it's your test on Wednesday and you'll fail because I've told you a hundred times to look in your rear view mirror. You won't listen to me. You're going to fail. It's great encourager, Bob. And uh, <laughs> thought, why am I paying him? Whatever it was, five pound an hour as it was in them days. And uh, so I thought, well, Bob, what does he know? And uh, that was my arrogance in those days. Anyway, I used to have a scripture calendar, so it was a verse for every day. I got up on Wednesday, the day of my driving test, 
and it was a verse from Philippians, and it just says, forgetting those things which are behind. And uh, I don't think, when Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians, I don't think he was thinking about my driving test. But I can assure you that when I saw that, I really felt God was saying, look in your rearview mirror. And I did, and I passed first time. So, so we need to know what God is saying. We need to understand the background of what he said originally. Uh, but we also need to be ready to hear what he's saying to us today. And if you understand the background, it will save you taking a text out of, uh, out of context and making it a pretext for something else. Uh, you can prove anything uh, from the Bible if you take everything out of context. For, for example, do you know the early church only used Honda cars? Because uh, it says in the Acts of the Apostles, the believers were all together in one accord. So <laughs> you can really prove uh, anything you like if you take it out of context. So we won't go into um, the whole thing about Habakkuk never knew what time it was because it says in chapter 1 that he stood on his watch. But um, <laughs> my family would tell you there's a whole hour of that. But I went, boy, you were So the Lord said to Abraham, get out of your country and away from your family and from your father's house to a land I will show you. In other words, get to the place. Uh, And and then he says, I will bless you. So he wants to reposition him for a blessing. And then he says, I'll make your name great, which is interesting because, you know, we're told to lift up the name of the Lord. But God said to Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. The name of Abraham was still talking about him. And God became known later as the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And uh, Abraham was known as the father of faith, and a lot of the New Testament is about Abraham. And, uh, and so God meant what he said, I'll make your name great. And then he said, I'll bless those who bless you, and I'll curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So something was happening with uh, Abraham later to become Abraham, and he had to move. And so he goes on a journey, and then uh, we find in uh, Genesis 15 a couple of chapters later it says after these things the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision saying do not be afraid Abraham I'm your shield and your exceedingly great reward and it comes there again to God wants that relationship so he's you know he's saying to Abraham if you're wondering what the reward of obedience is you know it's me I am your reward and that relationship is the reward for obedience uh, and is also his shield. But Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go childless and that the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham, then Abraham said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is not my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body will be your heir. And then he brought him outside and said, look now towards heaven and count the stars, if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And uh, when we're talking about faith, and Abraham was the father of faith, this is, a, this is a one thing that God does, that he gives us a vision. We talk about having a vision from God. And uh, what God did was take him outside and show him the stars and said, can you count them? And that's how many, not you're just going to have one child, but... That's how numerous your descendants will be. Can you count them? Now, the next night when Abraham goes out and it's dark, what do you think he's thinking about when he looks at the stars? He's not looking for the great bear or anything. He's thinking of the promise that God has made. And so when God gives us a vision that something's going to happen, uh, uh, you know, we need to be uh, 
ready for that and believe that and, and hold on to it because it may be some time before it uh, happens. And so God gives him this vision. And, um, and it says that he believed in the Lord and he accounted it for righteousness. So it seems impossible. The man's childless. He's getting on a bit. You know, he's probably looking in the mirror thinking, I'm a bit past it. And he looks at Sarah and thinks, oh, if I'm past it, she's definitely past it. It's not going well. And then God says, no, you will have, you will have your own children. And so by sight, it's very difficult to believe the time's gone. But it says that Abraham believed what God said. And uh, I remember when God called me, I was a, a new Christian, and I was reading through the Bible in the Living uh, Bible Translation. And uh, we were camping in the Lake District, and I'd read the whole of the book of, the, of Isaiah and didn't understand a word of what that was about. Uh, but I knew that you had to read the Bible. Someone told me when you're a Christian, you've got to read your Bible. So I was reading it, I read the whole of Isaiah. And uh, I thought, if God wants to show me something, he'll explain it. So I turned over to the next book, Jeremiah. And uh, it says that uh, God says to Jeremiah, I've ordained you as a prophet to the nations. And uh, when I read that, it was like I got an electric shock and felt God had said it to me. Now remember, I'd only been to Dublin, so I wasn't planning on travelling. <laughs> and I saw myself on a platform in Africa, in front of thousands of people holding a microphone. And... Um, I just, I remember saying out loud, I'm too young. I was only 24 or whatever it was. And I said out loud, I'm too young, I can't do that. So I carried on reading. It says, Jeremiah said, I'm too young. <laughs> and I thought, oh, God's heard this excuse before. <laughs> and then he says to Jeremiah, you must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Now, if you're a minibus driver in Moss Side in Manchester working for Save the Children Fund with little five-year-olds, and God says you're going to be this prophet to the nations and you travel the world. It's very difficult to believe. But what I did, I thought, well, God must know his stuff. I can't see how he's going to do that. And I'm not going to help him because I don't really want to go. But I accepted it. And uh, I just believed that one day that would happen. But I couldn't see it happening in the natural. And a similar thing, Abraham believes God. It seems impossible, but he leaves God. He believes God. And it says that God credited that to him as righteousness. So God put credit by the store of believing. So when we're believing the impossible, there's something that God just likes that belief that the impossible can happen. And uh, one of the things that we've done in, in Africa, especially in Rwanda, is I just love where there's nothing and everyone says it's impossible. And I remember standing with a long-time friend of mine in Rwanda and we we built schools and uh, orphanages and all sorts of stuff and we've done great stuff to set people free and we've had crusades and he bought this big field and he showed me the plans for a one million pound centre called the Dream Centre that it was take too long to explain it and he said to me uh, do you think it's possible and I thought well not in the natural no you, I mean some days I know you're not even sure what you're going to eat next week so a million pound centre. But I said, yes, it is possible. It is possible. Because with God, all things are possible. But not only that, if you think of the breakthroughs that we've had together, it is possible. And uh, I phoned BT when I got back because we moved to a new office. And uh, six months later, the phone line still wasn't connected. And uh, I went back out to Rwanda uh, nine months later, stood in the self same spot in that field, but there was a 2,000-seater <laughs> church building. 
So in the time that BT hadn't put my phone line in, uh, in the third world, as I did point out to them who's in the third world, they'd, they'd got phone lines, the suite of offices, uh, a, a, a thing bigger than this building that we're in, and, uh, and all sorts of other things helping the poor. And uh, so you kind of wonder who was in the third world, but don't get me started on BT. But anyway, uh, it's the one area I've not got the breakthrough in. Uh, so um, anything can happen, and God loves it when we believe for the impossible. And then this is what God replies. He says, I'm, I'm the Lord who brought you out of, uh, of the Chaldeans to give you this land and inherit it. And he said, Lord, how shall I know that I shall inherit it? So he's asking the question, how will I know that this covenant, this amazing promise that you've made, that we're going to inherit this land and have children of our own, how can I know? And then if you read the next few verses, it's like God tells him to open a butcher's shop or an abattoir. He says, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, turtle dove and young pigeon. And then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And then the vultures came down on the carcass, and Abraham drove them uh, away. Uh, When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And then just skipping down to verse 17. It came to pass when the sun was going down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and burning torch that passed between those pieces. And on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your descendants, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Well, he didn't say that, but you know what I mean. Uh, He he explained the terms of the covenant. Now, I want you to know what was happening in uh, Abraham's mind at that time. So he's asked God, how can he be sure that these promises are going to happen? And we might ask, how can we be sure that we can get healing from God? And uh, in that culture at that time, uh, if two families made a covenant, they would get a cow or a goat or uh, uh, you know sheep or whatever, and they would whatever they could afford, and they'd cut it in two down the middle, and then they'd place the pieces opposite each other, which God had just uh, uh, told Abraham to do. So what's in the middle between the two pieces is blood. I mean, just blood swimming on the ground. And then what they would do is uh, they'd perform a covenant. So for example. If you have, uh, you've got this family over here who were great at growing crops, we'll call them the Giles family, uh, and they're great at growing crops, so they're never hungry, except that they're not very good at fighting and people keep stealing their crops. Uh, over here, a little uh, distance away, we've got another family uh, who, you know, uh, can't grow crops, so they're hopeless at growing anything, so they're always growing hungry, but they're very good at fighting. They've never been overthrown. They can defend themselves. So in that scenario, what might happen is the two patriarchs of those families would get together and decide to do a covenant. And so they would get a cow or or some animal and cut that cow in two. And all the family would gather at this event. So every family member was a witness. And the the two patriarchs of the family... Uh, would walk in blood. In some cases, they might even cut their hands and press their hands together so their blood uh, flowed together. And they would walk in the blood between the animals and recite the terms of the covenant, of what the agreement was. And then everything that the fighter's family had became the farmer's family, and everything the farmer's family had became the fighter's family. So from that day, no one would attack the farmer's 
because they're now joined in a covenant, unbreakable covenant, with these people who can fight and have never been defeated. And, and the fighters never went hungry because they've come into a family that knows how to grow crops. And so the, the positives of both sides uh, come together and the negatives of both sides come together in this covenant and it's unbreakable because it's done in blood. So that's that thinking and that culture and that system uh, and they would, uh, their names, they become like a double-barreled name and, uh, and you could never break that covenant. And so that thinking, Abraham would have seen this in various places over the period of his life and he would understand completely. So when it says in verse 17 that it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark and behold there appeared a smoking oven, a burning torch that passed through those pieces, what, uh, what Abraham saw was that God, the presence of God that came down uh, for Moses as well in that smoking, uh, that pillar of fire and smoke, he saw the presence of God moving, walking in the blood. And it says that on that day that God made a covenant with Abraham. So the, the immensity of that moment is that God is saying, as you say in a covenant, everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine. I said that to my wife uh, on my wedding day in the Anglican church. We say all that I am I give to you and all I have I share with you within the love of God. It's, it's a covenant. But this one I'm talking about is done in blood and really everything you have I try and hold some stuff back sometimes, but she keeps reminding me of that covenant. <laughs> but in this one I'm talking about, there's nothing could be held back, and everything the other person had was yours. So that's why Abraham was filled with horror, because the, the, the immensity of the God of the universe coming into a blood covenant and walking in the blood with a human being, saying that everything I have is yours, is beyond anybody's imagination. Uh, how can that be so... Uh, it, it's incredible that this, this God who created us made a covenant with a human being. And from that moment, you, you remember really that God lost Adam to disobedience and he tried again with Noah and uh, that didn't go too well. And so he tries a third time. And don't say third time lucky because we don't believe in that. But he tried a third time and he met this man Abraham and it really kind of worked this time. And uh, he entered into a covenant. And that's why he's called the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Because from that day of this covenant, things began to change. Now, it wasn't on that day that Sarah became pregnant. But he, he changed uh, Abraham's name to Abraham, meaning father of nations. So again, like Romans 4.17, calling something that is not as though it is. He wasn't even a father, let alone father of nations. But God changed his name. Uh, and it changed the way he walked in the earth. Uh, through this covenant. So what does all that blood and butchery in the Middle East have to do with Ipswich and Suffolk in 2009? So go with me to uh, Galatians 3, which was in the New Testament last time I looked for it. Galatians 3 and verse 13. And Paul uh, is talking about Christ and the cross and he says that Christ, and that's just a Greek word that wasn't ever translated, it means the, the anointed one, or sometimes it refers to his anointing, the anointed one, Jesus, the Messiah, has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus hung on the cross. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Verse 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles, 
in Christ Jesus, that's you and me, the non-Jewish people. Jesus died on the cross that that covenant with Abraham, that everything that God has and is, uh, is belongs to Israel, uh, it now comes through the blood of Jesus. And, uh, you know, Jesus was fully man and fully God, so that, so that when the blood ran down his body, the blood of man and the blood of God ran together in a new covenant. And he talked about there's a new covenant. He talked about in the Lord's Supper, a new covenant in his blood. And that's the covenant that we're in today, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon uh, the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So our faith is involved. So if you just meditate on that, it's phenomenal. So I think it's a good deal. So all my sin, which belongs to me, oh, God gets that. That's great. The forgiveness that he has, oh, I get that. That's good. All my poverty, I can put on him. And he supplies all my needs in abundance. All my sickness and all the rubbish in my life, I can put on him. And he gives me his peace, his healing, and his restoration. I mean, it's a good deal. <laughs> If you're looking for a deal, this is a good deal. And that's what that's why it's so critical. The cross is not just forgiveness of sin, but it's the kingdom of God coming in all its fullness and breaking into this uh, the kingdom of this age, the God of this age, with all the sin, sickness and curse that we live amongst and sometimes suffer from. And it, it breaks into that. So it's incredible. The, the whole idea of the God who paid the price with the blood of his own son on the cross. The very idea that he would withhold some good thing from us is preposterous because, as it says somewhere else in the Bible, if he did not withhold his own son, you know, what, what else would we lack? I forget the exact phrasing, but, you know, will he not with us, with him, give us all things? That's what it says. Will he not with him give us all things that we need? And so there was a moment when I was studying this that I just, I, just in the spirit as I prayed, I just felt I was stood at that moment where Abraham cut those animals in half. And it, it says it went dark as the sun went down. And he saw this manifestation of the, the presence of the living God moving, walking in the blood. And uh, so when I'm praying for the sick, I'm there because it's a done deal. It's a done deal. And the devil has no power over that whatsoever. And the Bible says that the name of Jesus is above every name, and this is the reason. And it's above the name of cancer, above the name of AIDS and blindness and deafness, and any disease that the medical world can think of or name, the name of Jesus is above that sickness. There is no authority in heaven and earth that can come against this covenant. And so the only weapon the devil has against us is deception. And so he will lie to us. And that's why there is a lot of rubbish about healing and about God teaching us, you know, he sends sickness to teach us. All that rubbish is there because the devil won't have power to stop you if you understand the covenant. So his only weapon is deception and lies and is the father of lies. So that's a big step to go. But if you look... Uh, Let's just look at one final scripture before we pray. In the story of uh, the parable uh, of the prodigal son, just so you know, I'm not kind of making this up or twisting the scripture. Jesus consistently taught that this was the kingdom. Now, most of you here will know the story of the prodigal son. You'll know, you've probably heard sermons on it, and uh, you may have even preached sermons on it. 
Um, but I've never heard anyone, apart from me, <laughs> preach on the, on the older brother. And I've only done that since I saw this verse I'm going to show you. So we all know that the prodigal was the one uh, in the story who represents the sinner who went away from God. And we know that uh, Jesus, when he talks about the father who had two sons, he's talking about God. Is that not, is that not true? He's, he's shown us what the father is like. But he says that the older brother didn't go away from the father but stayed working uh, in the farm or whatever it was and uh, he didn't take his inheritance uh, when the prodigal took his so he's there and sometimes we just stop when the prodigal returns but then it says uh, from verse 25 onwards really the older son was in the field and he came and uh, to paraphrase he, he says what the heck is all that noise and the servants say there's a big party because of that you know, uh, reprobate of a brother of yours has returned and you don't think it's great. <laughs> and he's really cross. And he's really cross and he goes and remonstrates with his dad. Uh, and in verse 29 he says uh, to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you and I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours... Uh, not my brother, this son of yours, <laughs> came, uh, and who has devoured your livelihood with harlots. You killed a fatted calf for him. So the father in the story is God, and this is the words that Jesus puts into the mouth of God. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all I have is yours. So the son was there all the time, and as far as the father was concerned, everything he had and owned because they were in a covenant family. The son could have had. But he was there and he said, you never gave me anything. And there's a lot of people in the church that think God hasn't given them anything, many because they've not asked. <laughs> I know lots of people say, oh, I could never pray for myself. Yeah, well, maybe you need to, just for some common sense. <laughs> you know, Jesus is stood in heaven interceding for you. So he thinks you need a bit of prayer. So we, we, we need to know that God is concerned about our needs and certainly if we sick he wants to come and bring that uh, to us so he's, that's a covenant statement that everything I have is yours and the thing about parables is that Jesus hid things in parables so you can listen to this and just think it's a story about a father and a son you can get the bit about the prodigal son and the father's God and God receives <coughs> sinners back but at the point of the elder brother is that we can be with God, we can be walking with him, obedient to him, but never really receiving from him because we misunderstand the nature of the relationship. So in Christ, God has paid for us to have everything. Now, people then say, well, why am I not healed? And so what we know is, although the name of Jesus is above every name and God and Satan are not equal forces by any means, Satan is just a creature, uh, just a fallen angel, so he doesn't remotely... Uh, intimidate God but he is at work he is at work and he attacks our bodies with sickness he attacks all areas of our lives to confuse us and drag us down in John 10 10 Jesus said the thief comes to steal kill and destroy that's the devil's plan for your life and if you serve him and become a witch that's still his plan for your life <laughs> and if you hate him and pray against him it's still his plan for your life but Jesus said I've come that you might have life and life in abundance and if you hate Jesus, that's still his plan for you. 
And if you serve him, that's still his plan for you. So Jesus is trying to get the abundant life, the kingdom of God, to manifest and break through. And so he's looking for people who overcome, who come against things. And uh, we live in an instant society with microwaves, but if you look at the creation that God made, things are sown and reaped. You plant a seed, it doesn't grow that day. Uh, Some things are very quick in nature, some things are slower. But we have to be planting the right seeds to get the right harvest. So I hope I've kind of communicated the, uh, the covenant of God, which is what Jesus was doing on the cross to bring that to us. Not just uh, pie in the sky when we die, <laughs> but steak on the plate while we wait. Someone put it that way. So it's not just about a ticket to heaven and our sin forgiven, although that's, that would be enough. But it's about the kingdom of God being manifested now here in this life. So we're going to pray. I'll pray for those of you who, come, who are here who are sick. And then we're, we're going to pray for those who are not here but you know, are on your mind and uh, who are absent, and we're going to pray for them. And then finally we'll pray for anyone who wants a fresh anointing, particularly in the area of healing. And just to say, I don't believe... I meet all sorts of people who tell me they've got a gift, and I don't think they're talking about something from the God I know. Um, I don't even believe there is a healing ministry. I know there is a gift of healing in the, listed in the, in the gifts in, uh, in 1 Corinthians, um, or wherever it is. Yeah, gifts are in Corinthians, aren't they? Fruits in Galatians. Um, just checking there. <laughs> um, I'm not making the Bible up myself. Uh, I know there's a gift of healing in terms of the manifested gifts, but I don't think there is a healing ministry as such. I think there's a kingdom ministry and a gospel ministry. It was while Jesus was speaking about the kingdom that healing happened. And we need to be speaking about the kingdom and the gospel and then expect healing to happen. The RSVP Trust, changing lives around the world.